I'd like to pray for another local church, uh, for Fellowship Bible Church, and for Travis and Kayla Chappell. Let's pray. God, we are thankful this morning for the opportunity to lift up some brothers and sisters in Christ, another church in our community, Lord. We uh, want to just ask for wonderful things for this church, Lord. I want to just pray that you would uh, bless them. I pray that you would bless Travis and Kayla, Lord, that they would enjoy you first and foremost, that they would uh, walk in worship. Uh, Lord, I pray that you would sustain him in uh, just the work of worship, really striving to rest in Christ. Lord, I pray that you would give him um, energy to read and um, to pray and to study, um, to prepare for potent messages week after week, Lord, that you would uh, give him, uh, surround him with deacons that are uh, the hands and feet of Christ to the church at Fellowship Bible Church while he is uh, preparing to preach each week and praying over your people, Lord, that deacons are ministering to that body. Lord, I pray that Travis, too, has has time for Kayla, Lord, that he is giving Kayla his first and his best, and uh, that uh, second and behind that is the people of God, or his children, and then third, the people of God. Lord, I uh, just pray that you would bless that church, that they would have pro good problems like space issues and parking issues, and um, I just ask you to have your hand on them, Lord. I, I pray, too, that you would guide our time in these next few minutes, Lord. I pray that you would reveal to us the kind of father that we have in you. That's my deep, deep burden for the morning. We would have a sweet, sweet and rich and true view of the kind of Father that we have in you. pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. You can turn to the book of Job. Our focus passage is actually about four chapters. We're not going to cover four chapters today. That would just be an impossibility. But if you'd like to, uh, you can kind of follow along uh, when, it, when we eventually get there in Job chapter 38. Go ahead and put my first picture up there, Casey. The ostrich is the world's largest bird. An adult can weigh between 300 and 400 pounds. A rooster can be as high and tall as nine feet tall. Ostriches have three stomachs. They have to eat gravel in order to digest their food, rocks, which is basically gravel. An adult uh, ostrich can have in the range of two pounds worth of gravel in their stomachs to help them digest their food. Ostriches have some of the largest eyes in the animal kingdom. The size of an ostrich eye is about the size of, of a billiard ball. And they obviously have two of them in this little bitty head. Okay, so most of the thing is inside their head. Their, their eyeballs are so big that it crowds out their brain. Their brain is smaller than one of their eyes. It's crazy. Look, too, where the eyes are placed. They're on sort of opposite sides of their head, which might come in handy if you have to keep an eye out, literally, for predators. Ostriches are the fastest runners of any birds or any two-legged animal, for that matter, and they can sprint at over 45 miles an hour. They can cover up to 15 feet in a single stride. Ostriches' wings reach a span of six-plus feet and are used in mating displays, mating rituals, um, also to shade chicks, and also as rudders when they get to high speed, help them change direction while they're running. When threatened, ostriches' long legs can be formidable weapons. An ostrich is capable of killing human with a kick. 
An ostrich is capable of killing a lion with a kick. Ostriches lay giant eggs. My dad was a zoo vet years and years ago, and he had an ostrich egg on his desk that I got the chance to handle for years growing up. About six inches long is an ostrich egg. They can weigh about three pounds. They weigh about the weight of two dozen chicken eggs, one ostrich egg. All of the herd's hens place their eggs in one big nest. It's like a nine-foot diameter nest, and it's the main hen that actually owns the nest, but all the hens place their eggs in there, and they can differentiate between whose egg is whose. I thought this was kind of cool. The male ostrich sits on the eggs at night, and the female during the day. Pretty cool teamwork plan there. In some African countries, people race each other on the backs of ostriches with special little saddles and reins and bits. That sounds adventurous. I'm, man, that take a rodeo to a whole nother level. Ostriches can go without drinking for several days by living on the moisture in ingested roots, seeds, and insects. I don't know about you, but man, I think they're ugly. They're really ugly. But when you really kind of take in all their, or even just some of their interesting facts, they're really kind of beautiful, too. It's almost cool how they point to a designer and a creator behind them. We're going to welcome this, or we're going to bring this guy back to us later this morning, so you can go ahead and shut our ostrich friend down. We are in the book of Job. We'll come back around to the ostrich. You'll understand later what the ostrich has to do with the whole thing. Trust me. It, I think it will hopefully be, pun intended, poetic. Last week, we revived an old friend, an old friend named Job. He'd been sitting in ashes since July. We left him in July back there, and he'd lost everything at that point. We sort of revived him last week. We realized he'd lost his herds. He'd lost his family minus his wife. He'd lost his sons and his daughters. He'd lost his servants, and he eventually even lost his health. He was covered from the sole of his feet to the the top of his head with sores. This man was counted as the finest of the sons of the east, the greatest of the sons of the east. And God said about him, he said, there's no one on earth like him. He said he's blameless, he's upright, he fears the Lord, and he turns away from evil. He said it twice. This guy is a pretty spectacular, pretty amazing guy. And one of the things that we considered last week that was really surprising is God served him up. He served him up like he served him up on a platter twice in chapters 1 and 2 of the book of Job. And we had to make sense of it last week, and we're going to continue to make sense of it in the coming weeks. What do we make of this? Can we trust a father that serves up fine sons like this to suffering? Was he doing something just unique with Job that has nothing to do with us? Or might it have something to do with us also as sons of God? Thankfully, his buddy showed up, though. He had some great friends. I mean, you've got to know the friends if you were around for the journey last year, but maybe last week you got at least a snapshot into one of his friends named Eliphaz. He had three friends, Eliphaz, Bildad, and Zophar, and they showed up to encourage him. Encourage. Man, these guys accused him of all manner of sin. They accused him of being guilty. They accused him of pride. They basically said that all these terrible things that are happening to you, Job, are because you deserve these terrible things. These guys basically had a two-part message throughout these dialogues, chapters and chapters of dialogues. And here's the first part of that message. 
Good things happen to good people and bad things happen to bad people. If something's bad happening to you, Job, you do the math. You must deserve it. Because things are black and white and linear, right? <laughs> things are real tidy in their, in their eyes. That was the first part of the message. And the second part of the message is God's not knowable. God's not approachable. And God has no use for He's just barely, actually, barely putting up with the likes of you. As a moth, a maggot, and a worm. Those are what the other friends called mankind. Okay, so that's their two-part message. Now, we've met the three guys, but there's actually a fourth guy. This fourth guy, his name was Elihu. Elihu, he's not really counted as one of the friends. He's, one of a, he's, he's the youngest of the bunch. He's just kind of represented as a young guy that sort of chimes in. He chimes into this conversation in, actually in uh, chapter 32. It's the first time we ever hear from this guy. The first thing he does in chapter 32 is he rebukes Job's three friends. Like, you guys have been given some bad gouge. And what's really funny is as he continues on in the chapters after that, he says the same exact things that the three guys said. I mean, imagine being Job in this context. You're already suffering. You've already suffered at the hands of your three friends. And then you got this young buck chiming in and, and uh, tuning up the other three and then turning to you with the same exact thing you'd heard from the three. More suffering indeed. He tunes up his three friends. In chapter 33, he begins to rebuke Job. Chapter 34, he asserts God's justice. And you get the first part of his message here in chapter 34 in verse 11. Listen to what he says. You can turn there if you'd like, but I just want you to really listen. Listen to what Elihu is saying to Job. He says, For according to the work of man, he being God will repay him. And according to his ways, he will make it befall him. There's another way of putting that. He's saying, Job, good things happen to good people and bad things happen to bad people. If you're doing bad things, God's going to pay you back. And you must be doing bad things because all these terrible things are happening to you. The same message that came from his three friends. Elihu has nothing new to offer. In chapter 37, Elihu sort of develops this picture of God as a storm. He presents all these details about lightning and thunder, and he sort of associates God's voice with those creation-type things. He speaks through snowfall. He speaks through downpour, according to Elihu. He speaks through the thunder and the lightning. His breath forms the ice, and it freezes the waters. He speaks through creation and circumstance, Job. This is what Elihu says to Job. And he's clearly spoken through Job's circumstances that Job is guilty. All these terrible things are happening to you. So there's the first part of Elihu's message. It's the same message as the other three. And here's the second part in chapter 37, verse 23. He says, the Almighty, we cannot find him. The same message as the other three. He's unknowable. He's unapproachable. He has no time for you. In fact, he's barely putting up with the likes of you, Job. That's Elihu's message as well. So the consistent message from these three friends and this young guy that chimes in are these two things. Good things happen to good people and bad things happen to bad people, period. And that God is unknowable. We cannot find him. He's got no time for you, Job. He's barely putting up with the likes of us. Now, I want to ask you to consider just a couple of questions before we move on. The first question is how do you interpret your circumstances? 
How do you interpret your circumstances and the circumstances of others? A lot of times you can look back and see a pretty dumb decision and some consequences that are playing out, but then there's times you can't. Then there's times something happens that unfolds, and you're like, I cannot make sense of this. There's no way to make a beeline to some wrongdoing at some point. So how do you interpret those circumstances for you and for those that you're close to? Are you prone to think like and move like Eliphaz, Bildad, and Zophar and Elihu and say, well, I must have done something wrong for these terrible things to be happening to me. Is it linear for you? Is it black and white? Is it tidy? Would you join his three friends in that first part of the message? Would you join his three friends and Elihu in the second part of his message? Is God to you just a cosmic killjoy just waiting to smash you like a bug or a maggot or a worm or a moth? Is God unapproachable, unknowable? Is God like his, fr- like his first three friends presented him? This, this inspector, this building inspector with a, a sharp pencil and, a, and a, a clipboard walking around just waiting to capture some infractions and, and then nab you and throw you into the clink? Is that the kind of God that you imagine, the kind of father that you imagine? I just ask you to consider those two questions because I'm hoping today that God opens your eyes to the kind of father that he actually is through this surprising story and surprising suffering of Job. So let's turn and look at chapter 38. Now the way Elihu left this story off, he, before we even get into chapter 38, I think it's important to sort of pick up where Elihu left this thing. He left this thing in saying, God is a storm, he's a whirlwind, literally is what he, what he said, and you can't know him. Who can find him is what he said. You're not going to hear from him. You can't know him. He's just a storm and circumstances happen, so live with it, Job. And he's heard the same message from the other three. He's unknowable, he's unapproachable, and he has no time for you. But then comes chapter 38. Just look at the heading of chapter 38. The Lord answers Job. I mean, before he's even addressed the four friends, you've got to see in sort of circumstances rebuking the four friends. This unknowable God actually is going Hey, Job, I've got something to say to you. Turns out I do have time for you. Turns out I am knowable. It turns out I can be found, and I do have time to share with you. So just before we even consider what he said, we have to enjoy that God spoke to Job. Thank goodness the friends were wrong. Thank goodness that not the kind, that's not the kind of father that we have that's unapproachable, unknowable, and has no time for us and is barely putting up with the likes of us. God speaks to Job. Now, how he speaks to Job is just beautiful. He speaks to Job in, I think, what what may be the most beautiful, uh, almost uninterrupted passage of Scripture, sizable passage of Scripture in our Bible where we're hearing directly from God. I mean, it's all God's Word. We know that cover to cover, from let there be to the very end, the end of Revelation. But right here is four chapters with just barely interrupted with a few words from Job where God is just speaking. It's in some ways we're standing on holy ground hearing a message directly from God as he's speaking into Job's circumstance. And he's speaking too with not just data, not just information. He's speaking with some of the most beautiful poetry ever written or ever read. Man, I'm going to tell you right now, I'm not a poetry guy. 
I'm totally not. I don't think I'm a black and white linear kind of guy, like an engineer or anything like that. But I'm also not like a musical kind of guy that just gets into all these different kind of genres of music and things like that. I think maybe this more kind of a musical kind of guy that gets into poetry. That's just not me. But as I'm reading this, as I was preparing for this Sunday, I'm like, we need to stop and just enjoy this. I don't want to make this linear. When you try and make a poem linear, what have you done? Man, it's like making a song linear. You've taken the the beauty out of it. So what I hope to do in just these next few minutes is for us to just enjoy some of the finest poetry ever written. Some of the finest poetry ever read. Words that are coming from our father to one of our brothers, a man named Job. And in so doing, we can get to know what kind of father we have. So y'all with me? You join me in this? We're going to take our time looking mostly at chapter 38, just drawing a few of the things out of 38. Brief look at chapter 39 and just a mention of chapters 40 and 41. And I hope in that sort of survey, we'll get a taste and a tone and a tenor of the kind of father that Job has and the kind of father that we have. So let's start in chapter 38, beginning in verse 1. Then the Lord answered Job out of the whirlwind and said, Who is this that darkens counsel by words without knowledge? Dress for action like a man. I will question you, and you make it known to me. All right, right off the bat, (laughs) we're talking about listening for tone and tenor. If you're hearing words like that from God, I'm just expecting that we're going to sit up pretty straight, right? Dress for action like a man, that's actually combat language. It's actually military language. And it's actually could be translated, gird up your loins, Job. You've asked for me, you've begged for me, you've sought me, and here I am. I'm about to speak to you, and it's going to be serious. All right, it's military language. Grab your sword. You get the sense, grab your sword. We're about to wrangle. We're about to tussle. Continuing on in verse 4. He says, where were you when I laid the foundation of the earth, Job? Tell me if you have understanding. Who determined its measurements? Surely you know. Or who stretched the line upon it? On what were its bases sunk? Or who laid its cornerstone? When the morning stars sang together and all the sons of God shouted for joy. Where were you, Job, when the foundation of the earth was laid? Job, who measured these foundations? Who sunk its bases? Who laid the cornerstone? Where were you, Job, when the morning stars sang? Where were you, Job, when the sons of God shouted for joy? You may not realize it, but that question, that is a very important question to make sense of all four of these chapters. Where were you, Job, when the sons of God that I met with in chapters 1 and 2, those pre-existent beings that were actually there at creation, those angelic beings or whatever sort of beings they were, those ones who came into my presence when decisions were being made about you and your life and your future, and you weren't in there? Where were you, Job, when those sons of God sang and cheered for me at creation? When I laid the foundation, when I measured it and sunk its bases laid its cornerstone. Where were you? You know there's an implied response, right? I hope you get the implied response. You weren't there, Job. You were not there. That's an important question 
really for the next few weeks. Let's continue on in verse 8. Or who shut in the sea with doors when it burst out from the womb? When I made clouds its garment and thick darkness its swaddling band and prescribed limits for it and set bars and doors and said, Thus far shall you come and no farther. And here shall your proud waves be stayed. Have you commanded the morning since your days began and caused the dawn to know its place that it might take hold of the skirts of the earth and the wicked be shaken out of it? It is changed like clay under the seal, and its features stand out like a garment. From the wicked their light is withheld, and their uplifted arm is broken. Have you, Job, entered into the springs of the sea, or walked in the recesses of the deep? Let me check make sure everybody's okay out there. There's the, all right, we're good. Have you entered the springs of the sea and walked in the recesses of the deep? All right, let me just sort of draw out of some of these things if I can. Who shut in the sea with doors, Job? <laughs> just have to laugh. Who shut in the seas with doors, Job? Just take in this imagery if you can for a moment. Let's fight to listen. Let's strive to engage. God is speaking to Job. Who shut in the sea with doors, Job? Where were you when I said, thus far, waves? This is how far you'll go. Then no farther, and here shall your proud waves be stayed. If you've ever been to a beach, and I'm not talking the Gulf beach, but I'm talking a real beach where there's a real ocean, and I'm not picking on the Gulf. I'm just talking about like the Pacific. Have you ever been to the Pacific where these massive waves, these proud waves, you understand this image, slam you. What a beautiful image. God says, I told them where they're going to start and stop. And I told the waves where they were going to crash, these, wild, these proud seven, eight-foot rollers. Man, where were you, Job? Job, have you commanded the morning? Have you caused the dawn to know its place? Have you entered into the springs of the sea or walked the recesses of the deep? Job, in this resonating question, did you join the sons of God at creation and cheer with them when I did all these things? Job. And the implied answer is no, you didn't. So let's continue on in verse 17 and gather up some more pictures. Have the gates of death been revealed to you or have you seen the gates of deep darkness? Have you comprehended the expanse of the earth? Declare if you know all this. Where is the way to the dwelling of light? And where is the place of darkness that you might take to its territory and that you might discern the paths of its home or to its home? You know for you were born then the number of your days is great. Have you entered the storehouses of snow or have you seen the storehouses of the hail, which I reserve for the time of trouble, for the day of battle and war? What is the way to the place where the light is distributed or where the east wind is scattered upon the earth? Who has cleft a channel for the torrents of rain and a way for the thunderbolt to bring rain on a land where no man is, on the desert in which there is no man, to satisfy the waste and desolate land and to make the, gra the ground sprout with grass. Has the rain a father or who has begotten the drops of dew? From whose womb did the ice come forth? And who's given birth to the frost of heaven? The waters become hard like stone and the face of the deep is frozen. Can you bind the chains of the Pleiades or loose the cords of Orion? Can you lead forth the Maseroth in their season or can you guide the bear with its children? 
Do you know the ordinances of the heavens? Can you establish their rule on the earth? Can you lift up your voice to the clouds that a flood of waters may cover you? Can you send forth lightnings that they may go and say to you, here we are? Who's put wisdom in the inward parts or given understanding to the mind? Who can number the clouds by wisdom or who can tilt the water skins of the heavens when the dust runs into a mass and the clods stick fast together? These beautiful creation fixtures, really, that he's brought in already and that he's added in. Have you entered into the storehouses of snow or the storehouses of hail? Have you cleft the channel for the torrents of rain? Did you bring rain on the land, Joe? Did you make the grass grow? Did you give birth to the frost of heaven? Did you bind the chains of the Pleiades? These are constellations. Did you loose the cords of Orion? Can you lead forth the Maseroth? Another constellation. And Bear is also a constellation. Did you guide the bear? It's Ursa Major. And her children, Ursa Minor, with the Big Dipper. Did you do that, Job? Can you send forth lightnings, Job? Where then they then respond and say, here we are. Where were you, Job? When I hung the fixtures of creation and the sons of God cheered. Verse 39 of chapter 38 continues and it introduces some critters. We had lots of fixtures that we've sort of built into this thing already. He's built in the fixtures of the stars and the sea and the clouds and the waves and the morning and the dawn and the sea and the earth and the snow and the hail and the rain and the thunderbolt, the desert, the grass, the dew, the frost, the waters, the Pleiades, the Orion, the Maseroth, the bear, Ursa Major and Ursa Minor, the lightnings, the dust, the clods. And now he introduces some critters. It's like he's speaking creation into existence with these fixtures and now he's going to populate it. And he's populating it with these most amazing critters. There's the lion. There's the raven, there's the mountain goat, there's the wild donkey, there's the wild ox, there's our friend, the ostrich. There's the horse, there's the hawk, and the eagle. And each of them is beautiful, beautiful imagery. Just consider the horse in verse 18. Do you give the horse his might, Job? Do you clothe his neck with a mane? Do you make him leap like the locust? What a great, great image. His majestic snorting is terrifying. He paws in the valley and exults in his strength. He goes out to meet the weapons. He's speaking of a war horse. He adds then in chapter 40, the behemoth, critters that we may not even know anything about. And then in chapter 41, the Leviathan, this fire-breathing creature that he describes in chapter 41, yet another critter that we know little to nothing about at this point. I, as I'm studying these creatures and trying to make sense of them, I found that actually 99.9% .9 of all species are extinct at this point. Did you realize that? He's speaking about some of these creatures that we know nothing about. We have nothing about, no information other than what Job tells us about these creatures. And God is taking Job, this suffering Job, to the fixtures of creation and then the population of creation. These creatures all around. And he's populating these three chapters, four chapters, with some really hard and pointed questions. Where were you, Job, when the sons of God cheered at creation? Where were you when I did all this? And where are you while I'm sustaining all this? Huge, huge questions. 
Now, I want to take just a moment. I think I have two answers as trying to make sense of what God is doing here. What God is doing, I think, is the important and pregnant question. And how do we make sense of this? I think is an important and pregnant question that we're going to spend the rest of the morning on. But I want to take just a moment to address something. Job, for years, maybe for you, I know for me, has been read very differently than how we treated it this morning. For years, it's been read as a God that's putting Job in his place. It's giving him a little tune-up. It's giving him sort of a, a corrective sort of feedback here. And you know these chapter, chapters are often read that way as a really harsh and cutting tone. You can hear the sarcasm in there. I'm not ignoring it and not denying it. But I want to tell you this right now. that These chapters, these four chapters, chapter 38 through 41, have to be read in light of the rest of the book of Job. They have to be interpreted in light of the rest of the book of Job. And it's important that we understand what God has said about Job to where we can make sense of how God is speaking to Job. We've already addressed this morning what God said about Job. He said that there's none like him on the earth. He's blameless and upright. He fears God and he turns away from evil. He said it twice in chapter 1, verse 8, and chapter 2, verse 3. He also said in chapter 42, verse 7, about Job's friends, he said, My anger burns against you, Eliphaz, and your friends, for you have not spoken to me what is right, as my servant Job has. Does that sound like a guy that needs a tune-up? Is that the kind of father that we're expecting of our God? He's just, not me. (laughs) Not me. I hope that's not the kind of father that we have that's going to give us a tune-up just because. Is he capricious? Is this the kind of father that we're going to read in these passages? This is waiting to smash us like a moth or a bug or a worm or a maggot. Is he really like Eliphaz and Bildad and Zophar and Elihu say he is? He's barely got time for us. I'm not going to read these passages this way because of what God has said about Job elsewhere. This guy doesn't rate a tune-up. He's the greatest of the sons of the East. And when he spoke about God after he lost everything, in chapter 1, verse 22, it says, Job did not sin or charge God with wrong. This guy does not rate a tune-up. That's not the kind of father that he has. That's not the kind of father that we have. When he lost his health, it said, Job did not sin with his lips when he spoke about God and what God was doing. James actually had something to say about Job. James in chapter 5 verse 11 said, Behold, we consider those blessed who remain steadfast. You have heard of the steadfastness of Job. Does that sound like a guy that needs a tune-up? Man, I'm ashamed of reading these passages that way for so many years and not reading them in context with the rest of the book. This guy's not getting tuned up by his father. And it actually, James goes on to say, You have heard of the steadfastness of Job, and you've seen the purpose of the Lord, how the Lord is compassionate and merciful. That's the kind of father I want to have. That's the kind of father that I hope that we are enjoying week after week. That's the kind of father we're going to enjoy for the rest of the morning, too, because that's the kind of father that spoke to Job in his suffering in these chapters. Now, make no mistake, this compassionate and merciful father spoke to him in some plain speech. Dress for action like a man, son. Man, I think there's a couple little side lessons to be learned for fathers here that you need to be okay with speaking straight with your kids and having hard, straight, sharp talks with your kids. And they need to be bathed in the context of children that know that you love them more than your own life. Man, a dad that can't have a straight, hard, sharp talk with his kids is not reflecting the kind of father that spoke here plainly with Job. He was merciful and compassionate, but make no mistake, he was pointed, right? 
Imagine parachuting into this moment. If we could just parachute into this moment and we're imagining, you know, these, these conversations that take place while dad is driving and son sitting in the front seat. These conversations where you're just driving for miles. You know those conversations. You're going on a hunting trip. Or you're going for some sort of soccer event or something like that. And you're driving for miles and you're having this deep conversation and dad and son talking. Imagine parachuting into the back seat, the second seat, as God the Father is speaking to son the Job or his son Job. And you're hearing these conversations going, ooh, that sounded sarcastic. That sounded like a zinger. That sounds like a God that's actually kind of hacked at his sons. We have to understand what happened before they got in the car and what happens after they get in the car. This is a father that loves this son. That's doing something wonderful with this son. We have to read it in context. I refuse to read this as a God that's giving Job a tune-up. Job didn't rate a tune-up. The tone and tenor of this passage is a father that's speaking strongly, yes, strongly, to his son that he loves about something that he's celebrating to, creation. He's celebrating creation. He's enjoying creation. God himself, the creator himself, is enjoying the details of creation. It's like he's saying, hey, Job, in your suffering, I know you've lost everything. In your suffering, look at this. Look at this. Look at this. Isn't it wonderful? It's like he's saying, this is very good, and this is very good, and this is very good, Job. Man, you have to ask the question, though. Then there's Job sitting there suffering. We can see, I think, the tone and the tenor, what God is doing, but then you have to imagine if someone's suffering, and you go to, hey, say, man, can consider the Leviathan. You're probably going to get a sock and a kisser. Consider the ostrich. You're going to get a sock and a kisser because they don't understand the context and where you're going. Man, God is taking Job to a wonderful place, pointing him to creation. And we're going to consider in the next few minutes what God might be doing with a reminder of an ugly critter like an ostrich. So I have two things to share with you this morning. Here's the first. I think this is... If I'm trying to make sense of what God is up to, I think we can make sense of the tenor and the tone. It is not a tune-up. It is not a rebuke. He's not belittling. He's not berating. It's a father that loves his son that's speaking plainly and sharply to his son about something that's important and something that matters. It's not soft, gentle, loving. Military people don't don't talk that way to one another. That military language, but yet they love each other and they die for one another. That's the tone and tenor of this. A father that would die for his son and actually will in the person of his son. So let's just look at two things. First of all, I want to just visit with the ostrich for a minute. I didn't read the ostrich section, so I want to read the ostrich section. Let's just consider what God said to Job about the ostrich to see what in the world might the ostrich have to do with people who are suffering. Okay? How might we encourage someone with the reminder of an ostrich in verse 13 of 39? The wings of the ostrich wave proudly. We know they're six plus feet long. That, but they are, the, are they the pinions of, of plumage of love? For she leaves her eggs to the earth and lets them be warmed on the ground in those nine-foot nests, you know, that we talked about, forgetting that a foot may crush them and that the wild beasts may trample them. She deals cruelly with her young as if they were not hers. Though her labor in, be in vain, yet she has no fear Because God has made her forget wisdom and has given her no share in her understanding with her little tiny wee brain, right? 
When she rouses herself to flee, she laughs at the horse and his rider. Here's where I think the first thing that God is doing is he's encouraging Job with these reminders, these fixtures, and these creatures of creation. Is let's just consider the ostrich, this dumb beast. This ugly beast with a brain smaller than just one eye that has no share in understanding, the passage tells us. Yet here they are. Year after year. Season after season. Here they are. In the wilds of Africa. In the wilds of all the creatures and the critters that can crush and take those eggs and stop the further movement, the forward movement of ostrichdom. Here they are. Year after year after year, they lay their eggs. They kick a lion in the head. They eat some gravel. They run around some. The male sits on the eggs at night and the female in the daytime. And then the eggs hatch. And you know what happens then? Those chicks, they grow up to be big ostriches. And they lay eggs. They kick a lion in the head. They eat some gravel. They run around some. The male sits on the eggs at night. The female sits on the eggs at daytime. Then the eggs hatch. You know what happens after that? The chicks grow up. They do the same thing over again. They lay eggs. They kick a line in the head. They eat some gravel. They run around. You know, it goes on and on and on and on and on. Job, consider the ostrich. In your suffering, consider the ostrich just for a moment. I know you're hurting. I know you've lost everything. But if God's got the ostrich, man, if he's got the ostrich, the one that he made his brain smaller than one eyeball, the one that he made to forget wisdom and gave her no share in understanding, yet they perpetuated because he's watching over them. Can you consider that he's got you, Job? Man, Job, your father, the creator, is doing something here with you. So dress for action like a man and consider the ostrich. If this is what our good father is doing with Job here, it would be a lot like what our Savior did with his followers. You know the passage is familiar. Consider the ravens. They neither sow nor reap. They have neither storehouses nor barn, and yet God feeds them. How much more value are you, Job, than an ostrich? Man, what a sweet encouragement. Anybody need that encouragement? Anybody that's suffering and like, man, this is hard. I can't make sense of this. This is unbearable. This is excruciating. Is it going to be encouraging you to you to know that, man, just consider the lilies, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin. Yet I tell you, even Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed like one of these But if God so clothes the grass, which is alive in the field today and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, how much more will he clothe you, Job? Man, that's good medicine alone. Mm. If God tends to her, put her ugly head back up there. Put her back up there, Casey. So we see. Come on. No, not that. Not that one yet. No, go back. I just need the ostrich. Yes. If God tends to her with her big old bowling bowling ball eyes, little wee brain, then guess what? He's going to tend to you. He's a good father. A good father. 
And I realize that may not give you any relief just yet, but there is some help in knowing there's assurance that you have a father that cares for his sons. Here's the second thing. The second thing that I think we can draw out of this, all this creation language. You know, these chapters are full of creation language. You know, I've brought some of them out or pointed some of them out already. The fixtures, the stars, the sea, the clouds, the waves, the morning, the dawn, the sea, the earth, the snow, the hail, the rain, the thunderbolt, the desert, the grass, the dew, the frost, the waters, the Pleiades, the Orion, Maseroth, the bear, the lightnings, the dust, the clods, the raven, the mountain goats, the wild donkey, the ostrich, the wild ox, the horse, the hawk, the eagle, the behemoth, the leviathan. He even introduced the lotus. Man, it's just chock full of creation language. I think what's going on here is he's pointing a suffering man to a father who does just what he's pointing out. He creates stuff. This is the kind of father that we have, a creative father. He's creating stuff. Job, I know you feel completely decreated. He said as much in chapter 4. You remember the decreation, Lament? He's like, let there be time. I think a good father is taking the son to the place where he's saying, I'm making of you through your suffering, through these trials, through this loss, through this pain, through this silence where you haven't heard from me, through this noise from your friends, through these accusations from all. This guy has been decreated. And yet now he is being recreated because this is what God does. The God that said, let there be stars, let there be the Pleiades, the Orion, the Maseroth, the bear and her offspring. That same God said, now let there be Job. Man, you take that mess that you're going through now and realize he's recreating you because that's what he does he's a creating God and he does it through the travail of suffering he does it through the travail of childbirth it's a good thing we have amnesia about our childbirth man he did it with Noah through the travail of the flood he did it with Israel through the travail of the exodus he did it with Judah through the travail of the Babylonian exile. He did it with Christ through the travail of the cross. This is what our Father does. You want to know what kind of Father we have? We kind of the Father. We have the kind of Father that brings His sons, draws His sons through the travail of suffering into rebirth. Man, I love that. He's in the business. Of rebirth. He does it in layers. He does it in seasons. He does it in circumstances that don't seem like they make any sense. Those very things to bring us into his presence from one degree of glory to the next. That's what he does. That's the kind of father that we have. Job, through his suffering, has died, and a new Job has been reborn. God has done the work of making a good thing a very good thing. Let's pray.